reading is from 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to me. Come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, all, all, Are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for he, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Good morning, church. Merry Christmas. What are you guys talking about? Christmas, yeah, Happy New Year. Christmas was last Tuesday. Um, first, if I haven't met you, my name is Matt Ortiz, and I'd love to meet you if we haven't yet already. Um, secondly, uh, I'm glad you're all here. We've got, did anybody else have just an insane Christmas? Just absolutely insane. Made even more challenging by that nasty cold that's going around. And um, you guys managed to drag yourself here this morning. Pray for all the others that are either still out of town or who are sick in bed. There are a lot of them. Um, so be, be praying for them. Um, we are um, in a series, um, an, an Advent series. Christmas has come and gone. So why in the world are we still in an Advent series? Shouldn't we just be moving on? Well, as we saw last week, the definition for Advent is this. A season observed in many Christian churches as a time of expectant waiting and preparation for both the celebration of the nativity or the birth of Jesus at Christmas 
and the return of Jesus at the second coming. For centuries, the humble and powerless people of God waited for the one who would deliver them, that would deliver them, the one that was promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 after the great fall that brought darkness into the world. Then finally, Gabriel, the angel, shows up to a poor teenage girl, Mary, to tell her that the Lord is on his way and that she was going to give birth to the Savior that they've all been waiting for. And when he shows up, he comes to us as a baby. He becomes one of us to save us. And on the cross, he dies to conquer evil death and eternal judgment. On the third day, he rises again. And after meeting with his followers over a period of 40 days, he ascends into heaven. And the two angels that were there with the disciples say, in the same way that you have seen Jesus go into heaven, he will return. That's a promise. And so now, God's people, we are called to trust in this gospel promise that King Jesus will make good on his promise to return to finish making all things new. God's promise is alive. God's promise is at work right here and right now. And you are a part of it. You're all a part of it. God is fulfilling his promise to save you and to live through you and to use you to change the world. Do you believe that this morning? That's tough to believe if we're honest with ourselves, right? Because we're just, we're, what can we do? This is God's promise. Well, the whole Bible is about Advent, the fulfillment of God's kingdom. And we've been looking in this particular series at the very first kings of God's people, King Saul and King David, because through both good and bad, the purpose, that, the reason they are in the Bible is to point us to King Jesus. That's the whole reason they're there. It's to point us to King Jesus. So this is why we study the Old Testament. This is our first point. We study the Old Testament. The Old Testament to see the importance of our passage, we got to start with we got to start with what Jesus taught us about the Old Testament. See, we're tempted to say um, that we study the Old Testament just to see what we should do and what we shouldn't do. When David and Abraham and Moses, when they fail, we learn how to avoid failure, right? And when they succeed, we learn how to succeed. That might be true to an extent, but that is not the point of the Old Testament. Not primarily. The main reason we study the Old Testament is primarily, first and foremost, above all else, to learn about Jesus. The Bible, first and foremost, is about him. If you start with David and then jump to, you know, applying moral lessons to your life, it might inspire you for a second, but then it will crush you with guilt. But if you go from David to Jesus, then it has the power to radically transform your life. In Luke chapter 24, I keep going back to this because it's easy to forget. 
Luke chapter 24, two disciples are, are walking home to Emmaus and they're in deep despair because as far as they know, Jesus, who is supposedly the Messiah, supposedly the one that was going to save them, supposedly the one that was going to redeem them, he is dead. And they're despondent. And so Jesus walks up to them and they were kept from recognizing him so that you know they would actually listen to what he has to say. And Jesus asks, what are you guys talking about? Well, we're talking about Jesus. They crucified him, but we hoped he would redeem us. So they saw no connection between their salvation and Jesus' death, none whatsoever. And so they're in deep despair. And so, so how does Jesus cure their despair? Does he say, no, 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 don't be sad, don't be sad. It's me, it's, it's, it's Jesus, I'm, I'm here, I'm, I'm alive. Does he do that? No, he doesn't. That could give them some immediate joy for a moment, but, but it wouldn't give them what they needed. Instead, what he does is he opens their Bible, which is the Old Testament, and gives them an interpretive lens for the Old Testament. Luke tells us, and, the, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And when they finally go their separate ways, the two disciples say, were not our hearts burning within us when he opened the scriptures to us? You know what this means? It means that to the extent that you read the Old Testament through the lens of Christ, your heart will ignite on fire for the hope, joy, and love, and the power of God. Maybe you think, well, yeah, I, I, I know that there are a lot of Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. You know, I hear them all the time about, around Christmas time. But listen, there is so much more in the Old Testament other than just prophecies about Jesus. Jesus is saying to the disciples and then he says to all of his followers that the entire Old Testament is about him, who he is, and what he has done. And we miss the point so often. I'll just give you some examples of, of, of this. The law. The law is about Jesus. The Old Testament says, here are the rules, do them if you want to live and be blessed. And then we read Psalm uh, 1 and it says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Let me ask you something. Who is this man who has never walked in the counsel of the wicked? Who is this man who always, always without fail delighted in the law of the Lord. See, Jesus has the Lord's blessing and those who trust in him. The law is all about Jesus. Secondly, the Old Testament ceremonies are all about Jesus. The priestly garments, the ceremonial washings, the sacrifices. Jesus is the priest. Jesus is the light stand. He is the showbread in the tabernacle. He is the temple. He is the sacrifice. The ceremonies are all about Jesus. And the history is all about Jesus. Every hero, every prophet, every priest, every king points to Jesus. Jonah, Moses, you know, uh, Joshua, David, they're, they're all about Jesus. And so there are two ways people read the Bible. Either the Christ-centered way or the moralistic way. 
the moralistic way, uh, looks at the story of David and Goliath and says, the main moral of the story is, if you try real hard, you can overcome the giants in your life too. And, you know, look how little David be big old bad Goliath. You can't judge a book by its cover. And you know what? That may be true. But that's not primarily what it's about. The point is, you either read the Bible primarily to learn about what God has done in Jesus, or you read it primarily to figure out what you better do or better not do. That eventually crushes you because eventually you realize that you fail all the time. And if you haven't reached that point of being crushed by the knowledge that you fail all the time, you know what that means? It means that you're living in denial, living in denial of your failure and your self-righteousness. And we need to ask God to show us where we have failed him. Otherwise, our self-righteousness is going to lead us to destruction. You might not, if that's you, you might not get that now, but later I'm praying you remember these words. Because there is hope. And you're going to need it when you get it. Okay? The disciples on the road to Emmaus knew their Bible, which was the Old Testament. They knew it backwards, forwards, upside down, but they never read it with the gospel lens that Jesus gives to them. So what that means is if you have never read the Bible through the lens of the gospel, then you've never really read the Bible. Maybe you read the Bible cover to cover, the one-year plan, you know, for 20 years. But if you've never read it through the lens of the gospel, you've never really read the, the, the Bible and you've missed the entire point of the Old Testament. Now that we have our gospel lens, let's look at the story. The Lord anoints his king. This is our second section. We'll unpack the story a bit and ask two questions. First question is, what do we learn about Jesus? And then our second question is, what do we learn about us? The story begins, and Samuel is weeping. Verse 1 of chapter 16, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve or weep? over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. So why is he weeping? Why is he grieving? It's because Saul has been rejected as king. Saul was, was more interested in money and power than providing justice for the poor and oppressed. He was ruling like all the other imperialistic rulers. See, God and Samuel wanted a king after God's own heart. Back at the beginning of, of this book, we meet Hannah. And she's been barren for years, and she asks God for a son. God gives her Samuel. And her response to that is this powerful prayer. And in that prayer, Hannah gets a vision for a king who has a heart after God's. And this was before, this was before there was, ever was a king in Israel. She's given this vision. And, and Hannah says that he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a, a seat of honor. And then she ends the prayer by saying, the Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Do you know what the Hebrew word 
for his anointed is? It's Messiah. You know what the Greek word is? It is Christ. <laughs> Hannah is praying. His, her praise is all about Jesus. She mentions him right there. This is, this is amazing. Hannah gets a vision of a king who humbles himself to lift up the poor, who leads by serving, who gains our allegiance by loving us. It is a king after God's own heart. Now imagine Samuel got this vision for a king from his mom. He thought Saul would be the one, but he wasn't. And so he weeps. It's over. We're hopeless. It didn't turn out like we thought. He doesn't see the one with a heart like God's to fill this glorious vision, this glorious promise of, of deliverance and, and, and restoring the creation, the advancement of God's kingdom, the fulfillment of the kingdom. It seems like all hope is gone. But God says, it's time to stop. It's time to stop your weeping. I am sending you to anoint a different king. And he says, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord says, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You know, God, God doesn't say... He doesn't say, don't be such a scaredy cat. Don't be such a wuss. Just do what I tell you to do. No, God is a personal God, a practical God. When, he, when Samuel raises the concern, God gives him a practical way to, to handle it. So Samuel goes to consecrate Jesse and his sons. And now Jesse knows that Samuel's there to anoint one of his sons. And he knows this is very dangerous for him because what would happen to him if King Saul found out about this? But he sends his sons before Samuel anyway. And he sends the oldest first. And Samuel sees how tall he is and how regal he looks. He's just got a commanding presence about him. He looks like royalty. And Samuel says, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Samuel's making the same mistake all over again. When he first saw Saul, he said, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Because, because Saul was tall and he, he, was, he was strong, strong. Uh, he had a commanding presence about him. He would look really good with a crown on his head. He, he, he looked like Jason Momoa, right? Impressive. If, if they made a movie about Saul, Jason Momoa would probably play him. Isn't that right? Worked for Aquaman. Saul came from a rich family. He was impressive. This is exactly what the people were looking for. This, this has got to be, I mean, this has got to be who our king is. And God says to Samuel, all right, go ahead. Give the people the king they want. And God lets them make this horrible decision. And now Samuel is, is repeating the mistake. 
Even the prophet, the one who has like this direct line to God, even the prophet hasn't got the point yet. He takes one look at Saul and he says, surely the Lord, this is the Lord's anointed. And you know what the thing is? We do this all the time. We do this all the time. Snap judgments based on appearance or based on potential. That's why our culture pours out countless dollars into appearance. That's why our culture pins our our hopes and our dreams and our security on politicians. We all acknowledge politicians, man, there's there's a reputation when it comes to politicians for a reason, and then we end up pinning all our hopes and dreams on politicians. How insane is that? God says, Samuel, when are you going to learn? Verse 7, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Samuel says, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. I mean, are these all the sons that you have? Well, they're still the youngest. Jesse makes the same mistake. He knows Samuel's going to anoint one of his sons as king, but he doesn't even think to bring the youngest one in. Jesse says, yeah, there's a little Davy boy. He's out, you know, watching the sheep over there. He's busy with chores right now. And Samuel says, call him in. David shows up, and Samuel anoints him. And that's the story. And the main question is in our third point. What do we learn about Jesus? Jesus himself leads us to ask this question about this text from the Old Testament. David points to Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord's anointed, the true king. And there are three things that we learn about Jesus. The first one is this, that the Lord's anointed is God's choice, not the world's. Jesus is overlooked too. His appearance was not impressive. The world says he is not rich, he is not powerful, he's not popular, he cannot be the guy. Because the world looks at outward appearance. And the story Saul was the people's choice. So God tells Samuel, you know what, give the people the king they want. Saul was their guy, rich, tall, powerful, impressive, a no-brainer, but he wasn't God's choice. From the world's perspective... Jesus was just too ordinary. He blended in with everybody else. He blended in with all the rest of the poor and the oppressed. He didn't have a commanding spirit when he you know, walked around the carpenter's shop and delivering what tables and chairs, that, well, maybe not chairs, but tables that he built. He doesn't grab your attention, ordinary guy. And then when you look closer... It gets worse because it seems like he's actually weak. There's no way this is the guy. Second, the Lord's anointed is called to serve through suffering. Let me tell you something. The Lord's anointed is always called to serve through suffering. David was anointed as a kid while Saul was on the throne. And when Saul was anointed, immediately he became king. But when David was anointed, he had to wait patiently for years to take the throne. The whole time, Saul was chasing him and trying to take him out, trying to murder murder him. David was constantly on the run, living in, in caves, fleeing from Saul. 
But here's the deal. As we read the story, and given the context of the Scriptures, we see that David was matured through his suffering. David suffered first, and then he entered his glory. And this points us to Jesus. He was misunderstood. He was rejected and persecuted. He was arrested. He was beaten. He was nailed to a cross. And the two disciples on the road to Emmaus said, they crucified him, but we hoped he would redeem us. And Jesus said to them, you've been reading the Bible all wrong. Did not Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Third, the Lord's anointed is given God's promise and presence. In anointing David, God is promising David, you will be king eventually. In the meantime, though, in the midst of your suffering, you need to know I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am with you. Promised him his presence. And we're told that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David in power from that day on. And in the same way, Jesus was given God's promise and presence. And so now in our last point, now we can ask what do we learn about us? The Apostle Paul tells us, the Apostle Paul tells us that all Christians are anointed. If you are a Christian, you are anointed. I'm not making this up. Let me show you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, It is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set a seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts. Through faith in Jesus, you are the Lord's anointed. I, I, I don't know... I don't know what to say for, for this to like hit us the way it should hit us. Well, we hear it and it just kind of, it's a theological, interesting theological point or whatever, but, but this got to clobber us. You have been anointed by God. That means the same things are, are true about you. And that means, first of all, we are God's choice, not the world's. Since you are also the Lord's anointed, we are God's choice, not the world's. And why are the Lord's anointed not the world's choice? Because the, Lord, the Lord's anointed are given a message, and that message is salvation is of the Lord. We are not saved through our own strength. We are not saved through our own might. We are not saved by our own self-effort. We are not saved by our religious performance. Salvation is of the Lord. Because there is no other way. We are desperate for grace. Even David's heart. And David was known as a man after God's own heart. Great David, King David, he had a heart that was sinful. Even David needed a Messiah. That is the message. Salvation is of the Lord, not your might, not your strength. And, and here's, here's, here's the power of that. To the extent that you understand that salvation is of the Lord, you will not be impressed by rich people. You will not be impressed by famous people. 
you will not be impressed by strong and powerful people. Beyond that, what will also happen is you will not despise the poor. You will not despise the weak. In fact, you will be drawn to the poor and drawn to the weak because you realize no matter how much money you might have or how strong you might feel any given moment, the reality is that in light of God's power and holiness, in light of who you could be or should be, you are weak and powerless too. And King Jesus became poor and powerless for you. Second, since we're anointed, we also are called to serve through suffering. Just as Jesus suffered and then entered his glory, those who follow him will suffer first and then enter his glory. Nobody gets a free pass on suffering. Everybody suffers. If you are exploring Christianity, you, uh, I, I hope, I hope you don't think that being a Christian will make your life easier. We're not told that. It, it does bring a blessing for sure. But it doesn't make your life easier. But now God doesn't waste your suffering. And he makes it worth it. Like Jesus, our, our suffering is redemptive. Not that our suffering saves us from the penalty of sin, but God uses suffering to save us from the power of sin in our lives. And it's through our hurts and our problems, our challenges, our setbacks, our disappointments, uh, our, our, all of our problems. It's through all that that wisdom comes to us. And we see our need for Jesus. And we're filled with joy about who he is and what he's done. And you are redeemed from the power of sin. And then you're in a place to help other people, to, to bring them to Jesus as well. Jesus suffered for the good of others. Therefore, you suffer for the good of others. There is purpose behind all that. It's not a waste. God uses it. He uses it all. And then finally, you're the anointed. Since you're the anointed, you also are given God's promise and presence. God's great promise is his presence. God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. In the midst of suffering, I will be with you. I know many of you, many in our church, are going through incredibly hard times right now. And it's natural to question, to wonder, how can I know that God is with me? I mean, I believe it all my life, but I'm going through this and it doesn't feel like he's, how can I know that he really is with me when it doesn't feel like it? How can, how can I know that he hasn't forsaken me? How can I know that he's not punished me for, for all the bad things that I've done? Well, remember when I said that Jesus was given God's presence? I need to qualify that. There is a time when God's presence left Jesus, when the Father's presence left Jesus. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
See, Jesus was forsaken so that you never would be. Jesus experienced the wrath of God so that you never will. Jesus took the curse so that you could get the blessing, which is life with God forever. And it doesn't get any better than that. He is with you now. God, Emmanuel, God with us right here, right now, through it all. See, Hannah's vision has been fulfilled. There really is a king after God's own heart, a king who humbles himself to lift up the poor and the needy, who loves us so much, he laid his life down for you. The whole Bible is about this king. And the more you see that it's all about him, the more you will see how important it is for you. The more your heart will be lit on fire with the hope and the joy and the love and the power of God. And then you will glorify God with your life as the Lord's anointed. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me?